0: The name of tonight's talk is Torment of the Judging Mind. And this was a title that came out of one of my retreats when I had been tormented by the judging mind. And I think the judging mind is something that we really come face to face with in the course of a retreat. In our lives, it can be judgments happen so quickly, so frequently, that we don't even notice them. But in the silence of a retreat we come to experience the judging mind quite intimately. We might experience it through the judging of others. We find that we have this capacity to judge the way another person sits, how long they sit, how they walk, how they eat, what they eat. Um, I've noticed in my own mind That, you know, at one point there was quite a strong discipline not to look around, not to look at life around me. And what I noticed one time was sitting over at the retreat center in the front foyer, sitting there looking down as people would enter and leave the building. As someone would enter, there would be this pull of the mind towards the experience of someone walking in only so far as I needed to go in order to form some kind of a judgment. And as soon as the judgment was made, then the mind let go, came back. But there was this strong pull to just put experience into some category through the judging mind. On retreat, oftentimes we'll find that there's a lot of judgment towards ourselves. And these judgments can be lacerating. They can be debilitating. Now sometimes we might find, depending on the relationship we've had with our parents, that there may be the voice of our mother or father in our heads. And constantly, you know, either telling us we're not doing good enough, we should be doing better, we should do it this way. But there can be a harshness to this judging mind. We may find that there is a a judging mind that's based upon expectations, that we may have very high expectations of ourselves and how our practice should unfold. And so there's a constant commentary on how well we're doing. Sometimes we might notice that we get really caught up in imagining how other people are judging us. And so, you know, if we're walking and suddenly we find ourselves just stopping, spacing out, looking around, we imagine that everybody noticed. And they're, you know, probably everyone is so engrossed in their own practice that they they didn't notice. Or if they did judge, so what? But, you know, we can get caught in this. Or, you know, when you're in the dining room and eating, and suddenly you drop your fork or you make a loud noise, and then you just imagine that everybody is judging you. And there can come this inner cringing or, you know, just this um, self-consciousness that is excruciatingly painful. On retreat, we might come to judge the running of the center. That we think that, you know, the kitchen should be run in a certain way. That the office um, should be run in a certain way. Even that the practice should be done in a certain way that we can have a lot of judgment around the order of things. And there's no end to the way that we can judge both our own experience, what we think the experience of others is, and the way of things. On retreat this becomes quite evident to us. At home in our lives it's not always so evident. And the sad part about that is that we will often make decisions based upon judgments that have no basis in reality, no basis on the way things really are. We just make decisions based on these momentary judgments. a a way to really see how these judgments can have an effect is to remember back to what it's like when we first meet somebody. This is a time when the judging mind is very quick. So it's the first impression of somebody. We meet somebody and that impression is favorable. It's quite likely that we will make effort to get to know that person better. We want to have that person around us. If in that first impression it's unfavorable, for some reason the person irritates us, irks us, then it could be that we want to distance ourselves from that person. And then remember times in your life when, for whatever reasons, whether it was through a job, whether it was just through social contact, that you were forced to get to know somebody Uh, Maybe it was somebody who irritated you on, on that first meeting. But you're forced to get to know them better. And many, many times we will find that that first impression had no basis. It was just a moment of irritation in our own minds. And yet many times we will believe that judgment to be true. And so, you know, if in that first impression that person irritated us, and if we weren't faced with uh, having to get to know that person better, there would be that separation. We would push them away. And it was really unnecessary. It can happen with events that we may judge some things to be good, some things to be bad, have strong perceptions around events. I had an event earlier this year where it really showed me that nobody else would probably be able to judge my experience. And this happened on one Valentine's Day. I'm married to an Australian, we have a long-term relationship, and in Australia, Valentine's Day doesn't have a big significance. So my partner, in all the years that we've lived in America, he kind of calls it Hallmark Day, you know? and so Valentine's Day isn't a day where I receive a lot of roses or chocolate. Um, it tends to be, you know, just another day of the year, and maybe some crude joke made during that day. But on this particular day, we had decided to watch a movie at home together. And before we watched the movie, he said he had some treat for the movie. And so, but I had to wait until the movie happened. So then the movie starts to play, and it's time for the treat. And so he gives to me a box of Raisinets. And when he gives it to me, he says something to the effect of, This is probably the closest thing to hearts that you're ever going to give out get out of me. And you know, some people in hearing that would think, well boy, <laughs> he's a scrooge, you know. <laughs> Where's the compassion? Where's the generosity? And yet in that moment of receiving this packet of raisinets, my heart burst open. And this is just due to uh, conditions that we have shared in the past before, things that nobody else is going to know about. Nobody's going to realize that that could really touch me. And you know, and it's not that anytime someone offers me a packet of Raisinets my heart's going to blow open, but in these particular circumstances it did. And nobody can know that. So it's you know, to think that we can judge other people's experiences it's you know, all we're looking at is a situation based upon our own ideas, views, and perceptions. We can easily see this if we just look in our own lives back to a time where maybe we described our meditation practice to somebody, and this person didn't practice. So we tell them how we sit down, and we turn our attention to the breath, and we just let the attention rest with the breath and we bring it back over and over again. And then we get up, and we walk very slowly, paying careful attention to each step that we take. You know, I've heard from some of the people that live in the town of Barrie that they think that people up at the retreat center, whom they observe walking very slowly a lot of the time, they think that there's something wrong with these people. They aren't quite right in their heads. And this again is just another way that we make judgments. And, you know, we know from our own practice these judgments aren't true. This practice is value, has a lot of value. So, judgments are often not the faculty of wise discernment. They're not a reflection of how things really are. But more likely, they're a momentary thought that's arising. And you know, from our practice we know that all kinds of thoughts arise. And we know, you know the longer our retreat is, the more we see that these thoughts that arise are um, you know, often repetitive, incessant, often just garbage from the mind, surfacing. And the longer we sit, the more we see this. It's one of the things that happens. And so, you know, as we sit longer, we stop believing in every thought that arises. And so, this can also be true of judgment. The more we sit, the more we can see that these judgments are just thoughts arising in the mind, born out of certain conditions, born out of conditioning from the past, born out of perception in the moment, but are really insubstantial in nature. You know that they often are based on delusion, not seeing clearly, not being uh, clearly connected. As you know we sit in practice, we can begin to see that you know these um, these judgments can be based upon conditioning or beliefs that are based upon gender, color of the skin, achievements in life where we live, who our friends are, spiritual attainments, ideas of spiritual attainment, all, you know, ideas, beliefs, views that we have from the past. But they don't clearly reflect experience in the moment. They're made up of comparative values that have no basis on life as it really is. And they, if we pay attention, we'll notice that they often either lead to an inflated or deflated sense of self. And that this is a recipe for suffering. Central to judgment is this sense of self. With judgment, we are relating to experience in a way of creating this I, me, or mine in relationship to experience or the world around us. This can later identify, or it hardens into, a sense of identity in which we can become locked into. Many times, because we're not paying attention to the judging mind, we are not aware of how this moves into pain and suffering. It can at times seem like the judging mind protects us in a moment of unpleasant experience. If the judging mind arises, moving into aversion, we can move into a self-righteousness that, you know, if something happened that maybe was painful, rather than feeling that pain, we move into an exalted sense of self, an inflated sense a self-righteousness that keeps us from feeling pain. But with closer examination, we really begin to see how, when judgment arises, there comes this place of separation, where we're standing separate from experience, cutting off, distancing, moving into contraction, moving into this little I. The Buddha once said to Ananda, his attendant, Therefore Ananda you should not be a hasty critic of people you should not hastily, hastily pass judgment on people who passes judgment on people harms themselves when we hastily pass judgment on other people if we really look we will come to find the pain that we are experiencing in our own minds. It's a way that we actually harm ourselves. One time I was on retreat in a cabin and I, was a, uh, I went for about five weeks without seeing anyone else. And one aspect of the experience that was really noticeable to me was the great relief I had from the judging mind. You know, not to be continually evaluating myself in comparison to other people. There was still ample opportunity to judge myself, but there was relief from this aspect of continually evaluating myself in relationship to others. In the Abhidhamma, which is where um, the Buddhist teachings analyze the mind and the mental processes, uh, we find that judgment is defined as a form of conceit, a form of I am in comparison to, to the world around us. And it's described as an imagination that is not based on reality. So I wanted to read something tonight that comes from the Abhidhamma. And this, uh, it seemed quite fitting to me, and this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation and Guide to the Abhidhamma. I find it quite powerful in its undiluted form, so I will just say it through before I make comment on it. Conceit has the characteristic of haughtiness. Its function is self-exaltation. It is manifested as as a saving glory. Its proximate cause is greed, dissociated from views, and it should be regarded as madness. When I read that, you know a lot of it was not a big surprise to me, you no know, knowing of the haughty voice of judgment, or knowing how exalted one can feel at times and how there can be this self-manufactured glory that is based upon a deluded desire for fame or glory that is disassociated from an objective reality or understanding. But what really struck me when I read this was the last line that it should be regarded as madness. Now if we meet someone who's schizophrenic or is having a psychotic episode, I think it's quite natural in our hearts that we will feel great compassion for this person that is so struggling with the different forces in the mind, the force of delusion, in the mind. But to hear this state that I know I have so often experienced in my own experience, that of judgment, and to hear that as a form of madness, it really struck me. It took me you know, to a place of recognizing just how painful this state is, and how It is simply not true. And this judgment, as it relates to in the form of the conceit of I AM, is actually a fetter that doesn't disappear until we are fully enlightened. I think that it becomes much more refined in the higher stages of enlightenment. But this central conceit of "I am is probably going to be around for a long time. So to me, this pointed out the necessity to develop a wise relationship towards this mind state, so that you know it could come into Uh, could switch from being something that one tries to push away, deny, suppress, annihilate, doesn't want to know about, to one where one actually pays attention, brings into the light of consciousness, so that one can really come to understand it, come to know how one gets so caught in identification with that state, So that one can feel the suffering of it. And when we can really feel the suffering of that state, the letting go happens naturally. Because we have seen for ourselves how painful it is, how it leads to further suffering. The Buddha talked about there being three forms of conceit. He talked about superiority conceit. We know this in the form of comparing ourselves to others and feeling that we are some way superior to others. That there is in this form that sense of self-exaltation, We might experience it as we're sitting in the hall and somebody else moves and we see it as a sign of weakness. We don't move, we can sit still, and pride, arrogance arises. We might experience it going through the food line, having the idea that we should eat little food and the person in front of us heaps up their plate. We are superior. We are only taking a little bit. We have the idea that to walk very, very slowly is what a sign of a good meditator. Someone's moving quicker. We are superior. You know, sometimes it's only a slight puffing up. And sometimes, we see it in retreat, you know, and in the scene of it, it can be like, whoa, you know, it can be like, well, look at me, I'm such a good yogi. Patro Rinpoche, a great Tibetan master, in the book Words of My Perfect Teacher says, Of all the negative emotions, pride and jealousy are the most difficult to recognize. Therefore, examine your mind minutely. Any feeling that there is something even the least bit special about your own qualities, whether worldly or spiritual, will make you blind to your own faults and unaware of others' good qualities. So renounce pride. When we pay attention, we will actually begin to see how fragile the sense of happiness that comes from these moments where we feel so great, so wonderful, so superior, how fragile that is. Because in the next moment, it may be that the judging mind says, we're not so good. The sense of happiness doesn't last. And we also begin to see how tiring it is to constantly be puffing oneself up. That it's not sustainable because the world is going to come at us in some form with some judgment that's going to deflate that sense of self. And this is all coming from the comparing mind. I'd like to share a Tibetan story that uh, expresses something of the danger of identifying with this sense of self-aggrandizement. There was once a very proud, aggressive lion. He thought he was the most powerful beast in the world. And one day a mouse came to him and told him teasingly, You know, there is another lion, much stronger and more fierce than you are. And the lion immediately wanted to find his rival, thinking he would challenge him to a fight, win, and become renowned as the most ferocious lion in the land. The lion asked the whereabouts of his foe, and the little mouse led him to a very deep well. He pointed down and said, The other lion is down there, just look. And the lion looked into the well, and sure enough, he saw the face of a lion glaring up at him from the bottom. And the lion roared at it, and the other echoed in reply. And the first lion became so angry that he leapt straight down into the face of his enemy and drowned. This is what this form of comparing mind does. We see it out in the world, where we're, you know, I won't say we, people, you know, there can be habits of trying to be better than all the time, where we're trying to be superior above others. We see it in, you know, class structures in society, and it just leads to suffering, The Buddha talked about another form of conceit, that of inferiority, where we compare ourselves either to another person and feel that we are inferior, or even just feel inferior within ourselves, feel like we fall short in some way. And this you know, can happen in our practice where we have ideals of what our practice should look like and constantly evaluate ourselves to be not good enough. Uh, You know, we have some idea of perfectionism. But really, this perfection, according to who? According to what? You know, it's just some belief that we're carrying. Could be that we are judging ourselves in relationship to others and feel inferior. This too being a form of conceit. I remember when I was practicing in Burma, And in Burma, there was somewhat of a group interview style where you would often hear the interview of the person in front of you. The person in front of me happened to be what I thought was an impeccable yogi, a good yogi. She practiced in the way that I thought good practice should be. And so I would listen to her report, and up would come this feeling of inferiority. You know, even if I had had, you know, quite a—I um, don't—I don't even know how to describe good practice. But you know, even if it had seemed like things were okay, when I would hear her practice, suddenly it was like, oh, you know, I, I didn't even want to give my report. I felt like I was just a terrible yogi, um, and you know, it was just so painful, and that led into this whole downward spiral where I became this worthless person, no good, you know, not worthy, and it was very painful. And what can happen is that we actually get comfortable there, feeling of inferior, means we lapse into this state of re- resignation. You know, we don't even try, because why bother? Because we know we're no good. You know, and it's very debilitating. As a teacher of meditation, and having, you know, having had a number of yogis come in and speak about judgment, speak about self-judgment, I have been deeply touched to hear the pain that many of us have around feeling inferior, around feeling unworthy, not good enough that it seems to be something that is embedded in many of us as a strong habit. And for myself as a teacher, so many times as someone says this to me, I can look and know that this is simply not true. This perception that someone is holding of themselves is simply not true. I remember at the end of one retreat, uh, coming out of retreat, being in you know, one of those vulnerable states, and hearing uh, music by Sting. And there was one line in a song that just made me burst into tears. And it was the line, and I hung my head in shame. And in that moment, I was just struck by how many times in life, so many people experience this state of shame and feel distraught, despair, just collapse with this state of shame. And it's this judgment of being inferior, not good enough, unworthy. Last spring, I was sitting in a retreat with a Tibetan teacher, Minja Rinpoche, and he was talking about um, the preciousness of a human rebirth. And he said something that really struck me. He said, it is inappropriate to be disparaging of ourselves and to put ourselves down because we have within us this Buddha nature and so this inferiority this form of conceit not something we need to take to be true needing to learn to recognize it so that it doesn't debilitate us doesn't lacerate our hearts no for whatever reasons the cult, the conditioning we receive in this culture can bring to bring about strong habits of feeling inferior. Through our practice, learning to stand upright in the face of that voice and just being able to see it for what it is. The Buddha also talked about another kind of conceit, that of being equal to another. When I first heard this, it didn't seem right to me. You know, I thought about equanimity, balance, isn't that some form of equality? And so I didn't quite register what the Buddha was talking about. But as I looked at it more deeply, there was a few things that struck me, and so I'd like to share a bit with that, about that. First is, in the conceit of being equal, There is still an I, me, or mine. There is still two beings being compared to be equal. And then this equalness can be problematic in itself. A lot of times when we might judge someone else to be equal to us, It doesn't allow for the differences or unique capacities that each person has. I lived for a number of years in Australia. And Australia is famous for something called the tall poppy syndrome. And to understand this, I'll just explain that Australia in its modern evolution was largely settled by English peasants and convicts. And these were people who many times in their lives had a sense of others looking down upon them. And so this country being settled by people who had had this conditioning of people looking down upon them didn't want others to be superior to them. And so, how this manifested as things progressed in the culture would be that any time someone started to rise up, become different, unique in some way, people didn't want to feel that they might be superior, so they were cut down. It was the cutting down of anything that grew above others. And so, this doesn't allow for... People to have their unique differences, unique contributions. And if we look at nature, there is within nature natural hierarchies that are based upon function and not self-worth. Even if we look at something like a tree. You know, a tree has all different components to it that are based upon function. It has roots that grow under the soil, it has a trunk that grows upward, it has uh, limbs, it has leaves. These, you know, the, the branches, the leaves are up in the sun. Do you think that the roots of the tree are jealous of the branches, the leaves in the sun? I mean, if the roots actually were above, exposed to the sunlight, they would probably rot, die. They need that protection of the earth. There's just a function in it. It's a natural function. And yet many times we will take this aspect of being equal, uh, the function, and turn it into aspects of self-worth. This to me has been really evident living in spiritual community. The idea that everybody in a spiritual community should be equal. And so, when something happens in a community, everyone wanting to have equal say. And yet we find, you know, say there's a leak in the roof. Should the receptionist, the person who answers the phone, have equal say as the carpenter, as to how it should be handled? Should the cook have equal say? You no, know, there's just a level of functioning and yet, so many times, when we take this equality, we start to relate it to self-worth. And so, this, this is where this uh, uh, form of conceit can really lead to unnecessary suffering. So many times in our lives, we don't actually feel the pain of the judging mind. You know, we aren't aware of these forms of conceit as they arise in our experience and become identified with the views and opinions that get formed out of them. Whether it's to feel superior to another person, to feel inferior, or to feel equal we don't feel how painful it is. But as we practice, as we look into this experience, we will begin to see. And the Buddha gave one uh, description of what it can be like, where, you know, we may have, he, he described in the way of having distracting thoughts of so, Judgment being one form of distracting thoughts, where we can be so identified with these thoughts and hang them around our necks as if they're a beautiful ornament or garland and can be quite proud of them. But in our practice, as we pay attention, we actually begin to see that they aren't so beautiful and can become quite Horrified, humiliated, and and disgusted to discover that they are actually the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being. You know, that that was his description of how, you know, when we wake up to um, our identification with these states, we really begin to see that they are not what we believe them to be. And there's a great necessity to be able to recognize. Uh, judgment in our minds, this form of conceit. Otherwise, we will make decisions, evaluations in our life based upon these judgments. And, you know, to say that there is a necessity in life to be able to make evaluations, to be able to wisely discern that which will be valuable. We are faced with making decisions all the time in our life. You know, going to the grocery store, it can be just what kind of milk to buy. We make bigger decisions around our careers, around relationships, around uh, what house to buy. And yet, we need to learn to do it where it's not based upon this comparing mind that is relating back to a sense of self-worth. Just to take an example of the purchase of a house. It may be in our lives we don't have a lot of money. All we can afford is quite a humble home. Maybe it's old. uh, And By doing so, maybe it means that really, on a wise level, we won't be having a huge mortgage that we can't afford to pay, that we're going to have to work really hard, and be so exhausted we can't even enjoy living in a more well-to-do house. And so it could be a wise choice to buy a humble home. But if, you know, our sense of self-worth is tied up in that, we might look at the old house and think, Oh God, look, what a failure I am. This is all that I can provide for myself and it becomes painful. So it's really just learning to recognize where the mind starts to move into evaluating self around what we need to do in life. So I'd like to just speak a little bit about how uh, we can work with judging mind as it appears as we practice, because this will help to inform us in our daily life how to work with it in a very similar way. And the more that we become familiar with it in practice, the more easily we will see it in our daily lives. The first means is simply to recognize it as it arises in our experience. And this takes it from the place of being an unconscious force that is running our life, to being something conscious within the mindstream. And you know, just that is really helpful, will help to decondition the mind, will help us to be able to recognize it in future moments that we can recognize it in our experience. I found it really helpful to note it. This is one another place that noting can be really helpful. Just you know to be able to say judging. That clear reflection. It's just judging. And sometimes you know when judging seems like it has a harsh connotation to it, I've put just in front of it to recognize it as just judging. It's just another appearance in the mind. Sometimes I found it really helpful to note, that or to become aware of the tone of the judging mind. You know, at one time when it was really prevalent in my experience, you know, it was sort of like listening more deeply to what this was, I noticed that there was a queenly voice to it. And so there was just, when it would arise, Noting it as queenly judging. And what the effect of doing that was, it helped to lighten it. It wasn't then just, oh my God, here you are judging again. It just helped to bring some balance into the noting of the experience. As we note it, to become very intimate with it. What's the effect of that judgment? You know, and this is where we might see that the judging mind arises, and just in a quick flicker, there's like, poof, this exalted sense of self. Or the judgment arises, and there's that collapsing. And you know, you might really experience it physically. It's like, poof. Oh, that, the, you know, our big sails that we're sailing on become so deflated in just a moment. So really feeling the effect of that. And then staying with it. What happens next? You know, if in a moment we're really puffed up, it might be that we start to experience that there's this self-righteousness, but then as we stay with it, we experience Separation. That there's a sense of moving apart from experience. And then in that separation, we might experience the pain of that. Isolation. That, you know, there is a lack of intimacy with that which we judge to be inferior to us. we might at times notice what a strong desire there is to believe that judgment. Especially when it's self-righteous. Know that to feel better than, it can have such a sweetness to it. But again, we begin to see how fragile that is. We begin to really know in our own experience the pain of that separation. If we stay connected with the process, we begin to know of the impermanence of this judgment. You know, where if we're inflated in one moment, deflated in another. And you know, you can go through a day just feeling that it's a way of knowing impermanence. And seeing that, it doesn't last. It's insubstantial. In doing so, we don't become so, we don't stay so fixed to the content of that judgment, the belief, the idea that's behind that judgment. We begin to see them as passing clouds. And we learn through our practice how not to feed this judgment by staying in the process, by staying connected to the experience. There will be times when there's a backlash of the judging mind. You know, where there can be a savage, harsh relationship to the judging mind. Where we are really hard on ourselves. At these times we need to bring in compassion. We need to hold ourselves gently we need to really bring a tenderness to this aspect of the judging mind, because it can be so lacerating. But to remember at these times that we actually are dealing with, even though on one level it seems really frivolous, you know, the judging mind can lash out a judgment here, there, you know, it happens so quickly, But within that judging mind is this conceit of I am, which is central to the depths of suffering. So even in dealing with this, what we judge as the frivolousness of the judging mind, we are still dealing with the depths of suffering. The place where there is the contraction of I am. And so being patient, tender, compassionate in these moments. We will have many opportunities to work with this, both on the cushion where we can see it moment to moment in our experience, and, you know, in the world at large. It really, we can see it very clearly in relationship to the eight worldly conditions that the Buddha spoke about. Pleasure and pain. Pleasure. In, you know, when we have pleasant experience, pleasurable experience, the mind often goes into, oh, this is good. You know, when our practice feels calm, clear, oh, this is good. But the pain comes when we identify with that, when we take it to be I, me, or mine. And then when it disappears, we think we've done something wrong. When we're in pain, we often think we're to blame, we're no good. we can see judgment in relationship to gain and loss. How when there is abundance in our life, when there is gain, we easily also identify with as being good. And then when things change, as inevitably do they do, we experience loss, we think of it as being bad, and we will suffer. There's nothing that we can hang on to so the judgment that gain is good and loss is bad is really contrary to the very ebb and flow of life. That things are, you know, you know, the tide comes in, the tide goes out, there's moments of abundance, there's moments of loss. And this is the way of life. This is the natural rhythm of life. But if we're judging the abundance to be good, the loss to be bad, there will be suffering we can see judgment in the way of praise and blame. You know how if one person praises us and we become inflated and then someone blames us, we collapse. You know, it's this continual, painful state. Um, You know, I see it so much as a teacher. If I become identified, you know, I can give one talk and one yogi will come in and Sing the praises of it. Oh, good talk, good talk, you know, if I feel that inside. And it can be the next yogi comes in and says, it was horrible, you should have never said this, you shouldn't say that, you know. And then, you know, if my sense of self is tied up in there, boom, it's going to be painful. Fame and disrepute. If our sense of self-worth is tied up in fame, look at Hollywood, look at what happens around fame and disrepute in Hollywood. You know, one day somebody is a famous actor, and the next day the media picks up something, some fault in that person. Their career can just collapse. It, and, uh, you know, we see it happen over and over again. If our sense of worth sense of self is tied up in these conditions that happen all the time in life. And they just do happen, they will happen. If our sense of self-worth is tied up in there, we will suffer. So we just need to learn to see when this, this judging mind steps in, this conceit, that whatever form it may be of conceit sets in, being able to recognize it both on the cushion and in our lives. If we look at judgment, we look at conceit, there can be many psychological levels to it. I'm sure we could spend a lot of time in therapy around it. But our practice affords us of an opportunity to be with it on the level of dhammas to be with it on the level of experience. Being able to be with the changing process, the changing conditions that are happening. And yes, this is born out of conditioning, but through being with it on this level, it isn't that we need to go back and be really conscious of all of the conditions that came together in our lives, you know, the way we were treated as our, in our youth as a child, the way that this has been compounded in our relationship since, which, you know, at times that will be helpful form of exploration. It's not to say that's not helpful. But on the level of exploration of dhammas, it takes us into just a knowing of what judgment is, that it's a thought arising in the mind, born out of conditions, that this thought is impermanent in its very nature, this thought will condition other experiences, staying in the process of it, We may come in contact with other mind states that are underneath that were a part of that judgment arising and will really take us into the knowing of the truth of impermanence, the knowing that there's no need to hang on to this thought that is impermanent in its very nature, that it is insubstantial. And in doing so, we can become free of the impact of this thought that happens when we identify with it. And it just starts to bring about a spaciousness in the mind, a place where we can actually begin to listen more deeply. We can listen for that wise discernment, the voice of wisdom, the voice that can make a decision based upon wisdom through knowing what will lead to less suffering in our lives. That is not just moving into an self-evaluation. So through our practice, we bring a spaciousness to the mind We really begin to see, know, taste. We know of the pain of identifying with this mind-state. And in doing so, we know we don't have to go down that road. We know it's not the truth, the absolute truth of life. And that letting go happens naturally. So don't be afraid to look into this voice of judgment. Whatever form it may be, learn to recognize it. And there's no need to feed it. Come to know it, feel it, become intimate, and the letting go happens naturally. So let's just sit for a moment. May all of the goodness or wholesome energy that arises from our practice, may this wholesome energy be dedicated to the welfare, peace, and liberation of all beings everywhere. And so we'll close with the chanting of the sharing of blessings.
1: Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother my father and my relatives the sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.